Welcome to The Scope with Dr. K, where together we can reimagine GI care. Welcome to The Scope with Dr. K. I'm Dr. Kaczynski, and I'd like to open the show as I always do by reminding everyone that the goal of this series is to present you a broad scope of value-based care issues, mainly involving the field of gastroenterology, but including matters outside of GI as well. In each episode, we plan to bring you cutting edge information through a focused interview with an influential and interesting key opinion leader. Today, we're going to discuss how GI practices are faring in the face of the COVID-19 pandemic and discuss the strategy around the changes they will need to make in order to survive. To assist us in our discussion today, I've invited a longtime colleague, friend, and strategic advisor, Dr. Joel Brill. Joel is also a gastroenterologist, but gave up practice a while ago to pursue a career as an executive clinician. He now has over 30 years of consulting experience providing strategic leadership and medical oversight to large data-driven health organizations. He's most skilled in strategy, which has allowed him to develop and implement innovative healthcare programs. These programs, products, and payment systems reflect his experience in clinical practice they include coverage and reimbursement, quality improvement, data analytics, and value-based care. Dr. Brill works extensively with CMS and the AMA on coding, coverage, and reimbursement issues. He participates in the CPT editorial panel and has introduced over 180 CPT coding proposals over the years. He's published extensively on episode and bundled payment methodologies. Clearly, Joel can help us in our discussion today. Welcome to the show, Joel. Larry, thanks so much for the introduction. I don't know who this guy is that you just introduced, but he seems like a heck of a talented guy. If you can let me know where to find him, point me his way. Well, I think there's a mirror around somewhere. Anyway, thank you very much for being on the show today. Uh, you and I have discussed how COVID, the COVID-19 pandemic has been very destructive to the practice of medicine, including gastroenterology. I guess the question in my mind is whether we can turn this into creative destruction. Can you summarize for our listeners how the COVID-19 pandemic has affected the practice of medicine, especially gastroenterology? Oh, gosh. I mean, I think that um, our colleagues know that pandemic really brought um, gastroenterology to a screeching halt. For many of us in um, non-academic clinical practice settings where much of our day-to-day work really was focused around endoscopic procedures, um, you know, endoscopy dried up. Um, Elective procedures um, were canceled because of state mandates, lack of protective, you know, um, equipment, PPE, um, and like, and um, it's it, it really created a tremendous um, series of waves to practices because it wasn't just that your endoscopy reimbursement went away; it was all the ancillaries. It was the you know the ASC facility fee, the pathology, the anesthesia, the prep, all of that cratered along with, you know, you know, with, with stopping scoping. Now, mind you, you know, practices pivoted. Um, 
clearly people who are doing um, interventional work, um, ERCP, stents, things of that nature in the hospital setting, the need for that did not go away. That had to continue. Um, patients who had IBD, who needed infusions, that continued. But, um, you know, but elective GI, just, you know, I think the AMA's numbers are that it decreased by close to 85, 90%. And we've seen some other external data sources now coming from large, you know, data gathering organizations that, you know, say the same, you know, have the same message from a, you know, you know, from an analytic perspective. So practices pivoted. Um, some of them, you know, were able, you know, I think we're able to embrace telemedicine, some more successfully than others. Um, practices got, you know, hurt though. Um, staffs were furloughed, um, physicians' income, um, you know, was, was acutely affected by this. And then behind all this is the fact that if unemployment rates, you know, approached 15, 20% plus, um, how much of gastroenterology was elective versus how much of it was essential. So if you think about colorectal cancer screening, where a large percentage of that is on our commercial population and for a number of those patients um, where screening might have only become an option because of the Affordable Care Act, you know, if you lost your insurance, if your business went away, and like, you know, those patients aren't going to just, you know, walk into the gastroenterologist's office and say, you know, I've got $2,000 and I'd like to get my screening colonoscopy. So it's a big hit and it has a lot of ramifications. Um, you know, states are starting to reopen. And as we're now seeing now, states are starting to reopen and COVID rates are increasing. And states are, some states are even rethinking um, what reopening looks like. Um, some states have mandates. You know, you know, it may be that you have to have five days. It may need, be that you have to have two weeks of PPE on hand. Um, some states mandate that you have to test your patients, you know, two, three days before they come into the office or to have a procedure in the way. We're seeing that in Illinois. Uh, very definitely right. that they have a three-day requirement. Joel, I'd so, like, you, you, you mentioned telehealth. Oh, wait, mm -hmm. let me let you finish. Go ahead and finish. No, I was just going to say that these things have all had a significant impact. And, you know, to your telehealth question, I think, you know, we've always talked about um, the fact that before there were scopes, I guess in the, in the days of the dinosaurs, before there were scopes, gastroenterology was a, was a cognitive profession. And, you know, certainly the pandemic has forced a number of us to rethink this question and to offer um, telemedicine, um, to reach out and to uh, um, virtually touch our patients. Um, and again, as I said, some practices adapted um, and pivoted very well and were able to use platforms, whether they were video platforms or the, um, you know, the telephone only platforms, you know, 
kudos to the AMA and to the GI societies to getting Medicare to acknowledge that. But um, the reality is that telemedicine doesn't pay the bills the same way that endoscopy pays the bills. No, it does not. Um, on the telehealth issue, one of the things that made this capable of being deployed was that HHS changed some of their rules. We had talked about telemedicine in the years I practiced, but we could never do it effectively because there were deductibles and co-pays and we weren't really compensated the same as we would for an office visit. So one of the things HHS initiated was changes to this structure. Do you think HHS is going to, I realize this is a crystal ball question, but do you think they are going to continue uh, this policy and do you think telemedicine is here to stay? Well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm reminded of the Haunted Mansion, you know, at, at, at Disney. You know, when you're, when you're riding through the mansion and you see the crystal ball and um, every time you take that ride, you forgot what the crystal ball told you the last time and you're always fascinated by the crystal ball. <laughs> the reason I bring that up is the following. Um, if you had asked me that question back in April, I would have said, I have no clue. But we're starting to see some clues that are dropping. Um, the administrator, uh, Ms. Verma, um, said when the Medicare Advantage uh, call letters dropped a couple of weeks ago, um, she talked about how um, this was an opportunity for Medicare Advantage to um, increase the use of telemedicine. Um, yesterday, United Healthcare sent out an announcement to um, participating physicians that they were going to continue coverage of telemedicine beyond the original June 30th expiration date. So, I'm feeling moderately positive that the game has changed. Telemedicine is clearly here to stay. Now, does telemedicine clearly here to stay mean that CMS is going to now treat telemedicine as a preventive service and waive the copay and deductible? Mm. That one, I, I'm not I'm not as sanguine about. You know, commercial insurance can do that, but I think that I really think that once the you know the emergency is declared to be over, um, it will be very challenging unless Congress gives um, CMS the authority to to really change the concept of what is a preventive service and what's a benefit design. So I, I'd say that if I were planning, I'd anticipate that telemedicine is going to continue, but I'm not optimistic that if we had this conversation, you know, at the end of this year, six months from now, that it's going to continue with the patient not having any financial responsibility in original Medicare. Medicare Advantage, again, I think the agencies you know, giving some direction uh, to MA plans, I think, 
think they're, they clearly see that um, getting people engaged and, you know, if they can get engaged and not have to come into an office, which can be, you know, challenging for someone who may be suffering from um, social determinant of health issues. They may have food insecurity, housing insecurity, transportation, economic insecurity. You know, for those people, telemedicine can be a lifeline and can make the difference between that patient, that beneficiary, you know, being at home in a safe manner, getting their needs attended to versus, you know, showing up in the emergency room. You know, you, you've, you've hit on some important points on telemedicine, one, telemedicine, one of which I, I'd like to expand upon. The issue of whether this is a screening or, you know, uh, uh, or, or a, an indicated, if there's an indicated reason for the um, telehealth visit, that's really where I'm going here. If there is an indication that there's a change in the patient, then it makes sense that the telemedicine visit would certainly be covered. Whether there's a deductible or not, that's another issue. But one of the big challenges the practices have had is that the fear factor in the patients has precluded them from reaching out to the practices. And so some practices actually have been having staff call patients asking them if they would have a reason for a telehealth visit. And then if they answer positively, they're deeming that as enough of a reason to, to generate the televisit. And I'm sure Medicare is going to have to, and the payers, commercial payers are going to have to deal with the indication for the telehealth visit. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to The Scope with Dr. K. I'm Dr. Kaczynski, and we are interviewing Joel Brill today, discussing strategies around the post-COVID-19 survival of GI practices. Joel, we were discussing telehealth, and I was struggling with the issue of the indications for a telehealth visit. How do you think the payers, both commercial and uh, uh, CMS are going to deal with this going forward if telehealth visits become a long-standing um, tool. Well, first of all, Larry, I want to preface what I'm going to say that I'm not giving coding advice uh, and um, take whatever I have to say with a grain of salt. So with that disclaimer, um, I'll offer the following comments. Uh, as you're no doubt aware, and I'm sure as many, many of those who listen to the podcast are aware, uh, several years ago, uh, the AMA um, and CMS, you know, collaborated and we saw the rise of CPT codes around chronic care management. And we've seen a series of CPT codes that have evolved um, since that time. And so the concept that you described prior to the break, um, you know, of the practice reaching out and checking on the patient, um, the hi, how are you? And 
and seeing how that patient is doing and then determining and ascertaining um, does that patient need any further follow-up and like it's something that's been done in the commercial world with management of people with chronic conditions like diabetes and high blood pressure um, and heart failure and the like for years. So why shouldn't we want to proactively reach out to our patients? Uh, and why shouldn't we want to um, figure out, are they doing okay? Or are there issues that they'd like to discuss with us and if so, then, you know, whether it is at that point, right, you know, right then and now or scheduling a time that works better, you know, for the patient, that's probably a good thing. Now, as for, is it, you know, how is it documented and how is it coded? I, you know, that one, I, I, I hope you'll allow me to basically say that's something that a practice would clearly want to discuss with their coding professionals and consultants on what's the right way to document that information and how is that best built. But the waiting, you know, the, the old style game of waiting for someone to show up in your office is clearly being eclipsed by, I think, the new opportunity, which is to be proactive, which is to check on your people and figure out are they having a problem rather than waiting for them to you know come in and you know into that emergency room at five minutes to five on a friday afternoon when you least want them to be there well you're, this is totally consistent with what we've been building at sonar as you know um sending out our surveys on a periodic basis monthly basis we we are identifying patients who have de been deteriorating and those have been a source of uh, telehealth visits for the practices that are that are using the platform so hopefully this is the beginning of a a, a new proactive type of uh, provision of healthcare rather than the reactive one that we've been living in for so long joel i'd i'd like to ask your opinion here on revenue streams you mentioned how so many of the revenue streams of the GI practice have been hit hard because they were all dependent upon an elective procedure, ex except for infusions and, and um, uh, interventional work and hospital work. Where do you see new revenue stream opportunities for the GI practice going forward? We need to think about um, is there an opportunity for gastroenterologists to really take a more um, team-based, multidisciplinary approach to the management of, I will just say, weight-related disorders? Um, why shouldn't gastroenterologists be at the hub and the focus of those issues? So does it mean... Um, Diagnostic testing, you know, we saw evidence recently that certain gene profiles may be related to not just the development of obesity, but also um, the ability of people to react to certain drugs. You know, should we be incorporating telecoaching, behavioral health, uh, dietitian and nutrition, 
Um, we have devices that I think a number of us are aware of that are um, in the pipeline that um, in future years during this decade, we're going to be seeing that will be endoscopic therapies, whether they're for diabetes or um, endoscopic therapies for caloric restrictions, such as um, sleeve, you know, endoscopic sleeve, plications, gastrectomies, and the like. You can't just do a procedure. You need to have um, a model similar to what the bariatric surgeons have, which is to have a, an infrastructure behind all of that that supports the person's behavioral and nutritional needs. This is an opportunity for that. Uh, I talked a little bit about you are what you eat, and we, you know, we have a number of conditions that we treat. We treat patients with irritable bowel syndrome. We treat patients with um, celiac disease. Uh, we have patients who have suspected um, food intolerance, food allergies, and like. Uh, do we really have a systematic and systemic way of evaluating and managing those patients? Um, we treat those patients with um, pharmaceuticals. Sometimes they're effective, sometimes they're not effective. Are there other therapies? You know, are there uh, neurostimulation therapies, for example, that um, are available now, uh, for example, for treating kids and adolescents who have, you know, irritable bowel syndrome and have pain, um, who are um, not really responsive to medications. So we have to, you know, keep our horizons open. Um, cancer screening. I mean, you know, for, for decades, you know, gastroenterologists have relied on, you know, endoscopy. Uh, but there are clearly other forms of, uh, of tools that can be in the gastroenterologist's arsenal. Um, we have companies that um, have developed um, steerable uh, capsule endoscopes. We have companies that are developing um, uh, literally miniaturized, if you want to think about it, a miniaturized um, radiology imaging capsule that you would swallow and that it would give you a, um, a 3D view of the colon that would help you to detect polyps or not and help you to identify if that person needs to be referred for a colonoscopy or not. Um, there are companies galore that are developing um, what's called a circulator, circulating tumor DNA or liquid biopsies to um, screen for colon cancer. So we can't pretend that the endoscopist um, hegemony on colorectal cancer screening is going to continue you know, through the remainder of this century. We have to be aware that there are other options. And then we have to think about how those other options can be integrated into what we as gastroenterologists do in order to care for the entire person. Uh, I want to come back for a moment to the issue of, um, of you know, fatty liver. I mean, this is a crisis. 60 million people, maybe more, um, have some form of 
hepatic steatosis. Uh, many of these patients are silent running and you know, can go 15, 20 years without ever having a, a blip in their LFTs. And by the time that their transaminases elevate, they may already silently be in, in F2 or F3 fibrosis. Um, if you assume, I mean, well, I shouldn't say if you assume, we know that the FDA has um, had a PDUFA date out for, um, you know, for one medication, which was pushed back mainly because of uh, the, the pandemic um, and a request for some information from the sponsor. But we've got medications that are being developed for this. So how are we as gastroenterologists going to be involved in the evaluation of patients um, to A, determine whether that patient would be a candidate for you know, pharmaceutical therapy for fatty liver, and B, how are we going to be involved in the ongoing management? When will that patient need reevaluation? Can that reevaluation be done using non-invasive uh, as opposed to invasive, you know, you know, a liver biopsy for evaluating these patients? So, as I say, I see these as, as opportunities. Um, we have to embrace them and we have to diversify, but we have to diversify within where we are comfortable now and where healthcare is going. I think to kind of roll back for a moment, telemedicine is just the first wave. I mean, you have companies that are developing these blood-based screening tests that will not just screen for cancers, but they'll also screen for the presence of undetected diseases, you know, pancreatic diseases, diabetes, um, and, you know, and, and the like. So we need to open our horizons. We need to look at what's coming down the pike. We need to look over the horizon to say, what could be impacting my practice of gastroenterology in a couple of years from now and use this opportunity now to kind of retool, um, realign, uh, redefine what your practice offers. Uh, and, and so you're preparing for that rather than scrambling when those new things hit. Joel, that is a fantastic way to bring an end to this on that very, very positive note. And, and there's no question, you, you co-founded the AGA Center for GI Innovation and Technology many years ago, and you are still true to your, your beliefs. And it's so rewarding and refreshing to hear this positive view. Um, I think our listeners really appreciate that. Well, th well thank you. As I said, if you see, if you find that guy in the mirror, give me his address. I'd like to have coffee with him, but I'll be wearing a mask. All right. Well, thank you, Joel. Thanks to our audience for tuning in. You can learn more about the show on the program's page on healthcarenowradio.com and lend your voice to the conversation on Twitter at hashtag HCNnowradio. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at StoneRMD. I'm Dr. K. We're bringing patients, providers, and payers together to reimagine GI care. Until next time, I'm Dr. K.